much. Check. I'll take it from you. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Thank you, Ruth. And be sure that if there is a pack and play full of baby bunnies, there's going to be a pack and play full of Tommy. All right. Uh, imagine that. Just baby bunnies. Okay. So I have two things as well. Um, so one of the problems that we have is I know in a few months, a couple of months, not, probably not too far, things are, vaccines are going to be readily available and things are going to start opening up and all that. However, um, in order for us to actually open up, we're going to need more childcare workers. Um, and all in all, we have, I think right now we have like 10 volunteers and minimum we need is 20. Uh, as a matter of fact, if we had five people like sign up to serve in the children's ministry, we could have 20 more kids. Um, and we need that. So, because people are going to start wondering, like, why isn't there space for my kids? Well, there's no, there's no people. So as we move towards that, we're going to need to rebuild our hospitality team to make the coffee and cut the donuts so you don't take a whole one because we're trying to exercise moderation in all things, including donuts. Um, and actually, what I found is instead, if, if you cut them in half, you can actually have one and a half donuts, which is helpful. Um, so uh, we're going to need, like, people. So if you're out there watching, I know you are, if you're listening on the podcast, if you got it in this room, um, and you served on a team in January BC, um, we need you again to serve on a team uh, again. So think about it. Email us, governing board at Watermark Tampa. Um, if you can serve, whatever, email that as well, and we can try to get you in, plugged in somewhere there. Um, <clears throat> also, along with here, let me back this up, one picture here. Uh, this book that we are reading, um, uh, I've been talking to the author. We're going to have uh, a Q&A on Zoom with, uh, with Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger about the book. When we're finished with it, it's going to be in early May. Um, I'm sorry, this, that's past. Uh, March, May, June. No, May. Early May. Yeah. Time has meaning still. May. And that's, that's where we're going to be. Uh, I think first week in May is probably going to be a weeknight and we're going to have a Zoom like Q&A. So read the book, bring your cues, and get some A's. And, um, and that'll be great. Like, uh, Scott McKnight is really good at conversation. And so like, bring whatever you have. He would probably love to talk to you about it. Um, and then also, uh, that's what we're talking about today. So we've been going through the book of Acts and uh, 16 and Acts 17. And rather than the week before Easter, starting another study in the next book of Acts, uh, next chapter of Acts, uh, I'm going to take a week uh, this week and, and talk a little bit about some of the stuff that we've been reading here. If you've been reading along, I'm trying to like pair two things together because I have a lot of you reading your Bible uh, starting in January, like three pages a day. You should be approaching around the part where like Solomon is in the frame. So we're going to talk about Solomon today, and we're also going to talk about um, Church Called Tove, that book that we've been reading as a community, and um, sort of the parallels between some of the things you see in the text um, this is not going to be a deep, like a normal Tommy sermon, like a deep historical contextual dive. This is going to be sort of uh, much more pastoral. Um, I want to talk about unhealth, what it looks like in a church. I, I really want to create a bunch of people who, wherever they go, however long they're here, wherever they go in life, I want them to be abuse-proof in the church. That's, that's what I want. I, I want. I want for you to be able to go to another church one day and understand and recognize what abuse looks like, spiritual abuse in the church. Um, and that's part of what the book is also about. And so um, today we're specifically focusing on 
um, a trait that is mentioned near, I think, um, the first, in the first third of the book. It talks a lot about narcissism, narcissistic leadership. And I want to open that up today. I want to talk about that. Um, and, and I think when I'm done talking about it, maybe you'll have recognized it in some of your faith leaders growing up. Um, maybe uh, a spouse, maybe a parent, maybe a coworker or a boss, um, a friend who things went bad. Uh, I, I want to like sort of talk about like what this is and how it manifests itself in the church specifically, um, and a little bit about how, how it manifests itself in power structures as well. So that you can be Christians who are Christ-like and abuse-proof, um, and not take part in it, not pass it on. So if you would pray with me for a few minutes, and then we're going to dive into this. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for allowing us a place to gather. Thank you for keeping us... Uh, relatively safe during this time, for protecting our people, for guiding us through difficulties and, and, and divisive times. And uh, I pray that you would continue to lead, that you would continue to drive us forward, help us to become the people that we are supposed to be, help us to become good, accurate, imago days, images of you. Let us, um, as we move through our life, let our life be formed more and more by your teachings. May we read the rest of the text through the lens of Jesus so that we can recognize what is Christ-like, what is godly, and what is not. And let that start here this morning, Father. Thank you. In your name. Amen. Okay. So I wanted to focus on narcissism today. I think narcissism is possibly the most dangerous trait of any leader anywhere that a leader can have. Um, and I want us to be aware of it. I want us to recognize it in others, in ourselves, when, it's, when it appears. Um, and it, it's not just leaders in ministry. It's organizations. It's political offices. It's all kinds of things. Um, but it's, it's also very dangerous in relationships and family dynamics, like between parents and children. So we're going to talk a little bit about some of that as well today. Um, let's, let's start off with um, the definition, the Mayo Clinic definition, the same one that McKnight offered in his book, A Church Called Tov. It says this, it says, a narcissistic personality disorder is a mental condition in which people have an inflated sense of their own importance, a deep need for excessive attention and admiration, troubled relationships, and a lack of empathy for others. But behind this mask of extreme confidence lies a fragile self-esteem that's vulnerable to the slightest criticism. Now, um, the word narcissism, I'm sure a lot of you have heard. Uh, for those of you who haven't, here's a, here's a quick course, quick crash course on where this idea came from. Um, in ancient Greek mythology, there's a, a boy named Narcissus. Um, and as the story goes, um, yeah, it's very dark. Oh, well. Um, it's, it's a kid looking in the water, in case you can't tell. Um, so Narcissus was this beautiful boy. Um, very handsome, very attractive. His face is said to be chiseled out of stone. He's just, he's a really good-looking guy. And uh, one day he's out and he's, uh, he's walking around and he is 16 years old and he's walking along the mythical river Styx. Um, and when he approaches a calm pool along the side of the river, he looks down in the water to look at the fish and stuff and he sees a man there who is incredibly gorgeous, a beautiful young man and realizes it's himself. And he is captivated by this guy, who is he, and he is, just falls in love with his own reflection. And as the story goes, from the moment Narcissus fall, fell in, saw himself, he fell in love with his image, um, and he was so obsessed with his own image that he could not love anyone or anyone else other than himself. 
Um, he could not return any love to anyone other than to himself as well. And Narcissus eventually could not even bear to leave his reflection in the pool, so he lay down by the pool and he pined for himself day in and day out until he was finally um, absorbed by the earth and he became a flower called the Narcissus. That's right. That's why they grow by the water's edge and sort of look like they're peering into the water, um, which can be still found along the banks of, of a lot of uh, rivers over there. Um, that is the story of Narcissus, and it perfectly captures the idea of narcissism. Someone who is in love with themselves to the point where um, they have a hard time responding to the love of other people in a way that benefits them. It only benefits themselves. So um, I want to point out that for every personality disorder that you can find, there is almost always a biblical character, especially in the Old Testament, that sort of, that sort of displays, and several in the New Testament as well, that displays this personality disorder. Um, uh, someone who is um, completely paranoid, um, that'd, be, that'd be Saul, right? Uh, someone who is a, a narcissist would be Solomon. And that's who we're talking about today. Let's talk about Solomon. Um, so Solomon is oftentimes held up in evangelical circles as this great leader. A lot of people in the Old Testament are. When I was growing up, again, and I, I've been talking about this a lot lately because it's just been on my mind a lot, how many times I was told to emulate leaders in the Old Testament um, and try to be like them, try to be like Joshua, try to be like David. Um, but the more I read about Jesus, the, the more I realize how little these, these men and women represented Jesus at all, how little they actually looked like Jesus. And at some point, you come to realize, no, 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 no. I'm not supposed to emulate these people. I'm supposed to emulate Jesus, who is, according to Hebrews, the perfect image, the complete picture of the Father. And so, um, Solomon, his father, he started off in a difficult position because his father was supposedly, as they say, the greatest king that Israel ever had. Um, he he uh, is the one who sort of established sort of the, the monarchy and unified the kingdom and set it up and, and uh, came up with the idea for building the temple. And he didn't actually do it. He built a tabernacle and wailed about how there should be a temple. And, and God told him, your son is going to do that, not you. But looking back at Israel past, they always talk about how <clears throat> David was the greatest king that they ever had. Um, and so David was considered benevolent, greatly loved by his people, despite massive moral failures, like obviously murder and rape and things like that. These people still looked at him and said, every king that we have should really try to be like King David because there has never been any like him. Um, obviously, we can look back at now and be like, well, I mean, Jesus, a million times better, obviously. But in that day, that's what they had, and they're looking back at it. So when it came time to pass for the, for the torch to be passed from King David to the, to the firstborn, after, after the monarchy is set up, um, it was supposed to go to the firstborn, um, who is Adonijah, but that is not exactly how it went. He was the firstborn, so he has the rightful heir to the throne. But Solomon was the most beloved son of King David. King David loved Solomon the most. And so what happens is after the death of, of King David, Ad, Adonijah stands up and he declares himself the king. And it leads to sort of this usurping and revolt by Solomon. And Solomon underhandedly sort of takes the throne away. Um, but Solomon understands that he was never supposed to be the king of Israel. That's something that he did on his own. It was not given to him. 
And there's all these little lines that we get that say that he wasn't even qualified for the job. We have lines like this one here. It's 1 Chronicles 29. It says, uh, And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, who alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. So he's, he's, he's young. He doesn't seem to know a lot. He doesn't know how to govern well. He doesn't seem to know a lot about being a king. And so he always sort of carries this complex with him that he's not enough and that he needs to be more. And he spends the rest of his life, it appears, trying to become the most so that everyone will look at him and affirm his position and his authority and basically say, yes, you are good at this. This is, yes, you are a good king. And that, that's what he's after. He wants the acclaim. He wants the applause. He wants all of that. And so God at some point tells him, I'm going to grant you one request. And when he does, he asks for wisdom because wisdom, um, wisdom is something that the Spirit of God had. Um, and the Spirit of God was God was their king. And so he wants the wisdom of the king. He wants to be able to um, divide between right and wrong and, and, and good and bad. And he wants to be able to govern well. So he asks for wisdom. And when he receives it, he actually doesn't use that wisdom to accomplish the work of Israel. He uses the wisdom that he receives to wildly enrich himself. Um, because Solomon, you see, was a narcissist. And so everything that came into his power ended up being something to use for himself and his own glory. Let's read a little bit about some of the things uh, that the text says about him, Ecclesiastes. Now, um, Ecclesiastes doesn't specifically say Solomon wrote it. It says a man um, named Kohelet wrote it, um, but he's writing as the king. Um, and so it says this, it says, I enlarged my works, I built houses for myself, I planted my vineyards, uh, uh, my vineyards for myself, I made gardens and parks for myself, I planted them in them all kinds of fruit trees, I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. Are you seeing a pattern? Myself, I did this for myself, I did that for myself, I did all these things for myself. All these people that I'm over and I did all this stuff for myself. I bought male and female slaves. I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself, male and female singers, and the pleasures of, of, of men and many concubines. And so this guy, he's... He's incapable of seeing anything that exists around him as being other than a playground for himself, including the very people in his life. So he gathers a thousand women so that he can bed them regularly, but not have any kind of relationship with anyone because it is about him. And this tends to be how sort of narcissists view their power. Everything, everyone that exists in their kingdom that they are over becomes um, a tool for their disposal to, to enlarge their kingdom in some way, to embedder themselves, to make themselves have more honor and more praise. Um, even a cursory reading of Solomon's project list, it's easy to recognize that all of the focus is on himself. Because this is the big, fa this is the big failure of, of narcissistic leadership, is that, is that people aren't people. People are ants, people are pawns, people are tools. They're not equal with you. They were not put here for the same reason that you were put here. That's how the narcissist tends to think. Um, 
And with the constant refrain of, of me and mine and myself, just like King Solomon here, it reveals that he is obsessed with himself and with creating an image that would outshine the, the, the star that was his father. No matter where he went, everyone's still talking about how great his father was and not him. And so he tries harder and harder and harder to get that affirmation for himself. This is how narcissistic leadership works. And apparently, once in a while, he would succeed But as a result of his massive self-indulgent projects, he began to indulge um, in in all that he had, in the image that he had created for himself. Let's go a little farther here. Uh, One more passage on the book of Ecclesiastes. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me. He doesn't name it by name, but he's trying to beat his father. He's trying to become better than his father. All that preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me, and all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased, because all my labor, uh, and this was my reward for all my labor. So he's like, I deserve this. I've worked hard. I deserve everything that I can get. I'm going to go after everything that I can possibly receive. Solomon is not a leader who Christians should be emulating. And yet... Time and time again, growing up, I would hear, do you want to be like Solomon? Pray for wisdom. Do you want to be like Solomon? Pray for wisdom. Well, who doesn't want to be wealthy and have everything at your fingertips? I'm going to pray for godly wisdom, apparently, to get all of these things. This does not align at all with the path of Jesus that is displayed for us in the Gospels. Solomon is not Christ-like. There may be bits and pieces of his life that point to goodness and good things. But by and large, everything that he became and everything that he did was in direct rebellion to actually what God told him to do. He talks about bringing slaves in from Egypt. He talks about importing chariots and horses and armies, all the things that God wiped out. Uh, and, that, and now they're, they're literally, they've become Egypt. They've imported everything from Egypt that they hated, that oppressed them, including slaves, and they're building the Lord's temple. They're building everything with slave labor. This is not at all how Christ lives and leads and guides us how we are to live. Um, Jesus wrote nothing. Jesus left behind no monuments to himself. He didn't assign anything. Uh, he, I'm sorry. He didn't, he didn't assign himself any great titles at all. He never strove to make a name for himself. He didn't rub shoulders with powerful people. Um, he never posed with presidents. He never had meetings with CEOs. He never sat at the table of shared honor with any high people. And when he did sit at the tables of shared honor, it was always with Pharisees and sex workers together, as if to say, us, humanity, on the same level. The honor system has no place here. And it's incredibly unique in that ancient world. In fact, the very thing that Jesus is known for is bearing shame. All of the things that gave Jesus honor in that ancient culture where narcissism tends to really pay off in an honor culture. I mean, let's be honest. There are professions today in which narcissism pays off. Um, Online social media influencing, politics, um, modeling, commercial, stuff like this. Movies, music. There are plenty of careers where narcissism pays you handsomely. But that is not the example that we are given at all. When we find Jesus at the pinnacle of his ministry, it is not when he's preaching to thousands of people. It is when he is alone with two other thieves on a cross. And all the things that symbolized his honor, 
one of them being his masculinity, had been ripped out with his beard. That was a, a thing you would do to shame men in that day, was shave their beard. And it had been ripped out as if to say, even the thing that gave you an edge in society of being a man, that's gone. And then his clothes have been ripped off. He's been stripped naked. He has been whipped. He is bleeding profusely from everywhere. A mocking crown of thorn on his head. Hanging between two insurrectionists as if to say, look, another one fails to live up to the greatness of Rome. Everything at the moment of Jesus' biggest moment of his ministry is the opposite of narcissistic leadership. It is selfless. It is self-sacrificial. It is even self-debasing, if you would. And so let's talk about this and how it works out in the church today because it, it's prevalent. In America, we're kind of a breeding ground for this kind of behavior, for narcissistic leadership, especially in ministry. For some reason, especially in the megachurch model, um, narcissists do really well. And if you look back over the last few years and the tragedies that have unfolded in churches all over America, you can see it. It brings down so many ministries, and we must be able to recognize it. Um, Because a lot of modern pastors are, are influenced by this American consumer society, and they build their ministry upon it. And so let's talk about some of the signs of narcissism in in ministry, in leadership, um, and talk about what they look like for a few minutes here. Um, So, narcissists in leadership, in ministry, they tend to believe that the church would fall apart and fail if they left. There's a mouse on the screen. Um, If they left and if they failed. They, They tend to believe that if I disappeared, this whole place would collapse. This is a, shows basically a deficient ecclesiology. Ecclesiology, that's a big word for like study of the church. It's a, it's a deficient view of like how churches actually exist. Jesus plants churches, Jesus grows churches, and Jesus kills churches all the time. That's what he does, all the time. Narcissists also, uh, narcissistic leaders are driven to succeed by the need for admiration and acclaim. They need praise. They need you to tell them how great they are or they cannot continue. Which is why the opposite of acclaim, criticism, is not received well at all. Let's go a little farther. Narcissistic leaders have an overinflated sense of importance as well as great ambitions and grandiose fantasies. They have huge dreams for the, for the organization. And they're 10 years out with their plan, and they know exactly how many people they're going to be, and they know which magazines they're going to call up first for their first interviews, and they know which publishing house is going to publish their first book, because it is about them. It is not about the kingdom of God. It is not about the people in the room who they are here to shepherd, and whom they are supposed to serve under. We have to learn to recognize this. This is a specifically Americanized, westernized version of pastoring. Um, and, I, and I wanted to put this one in writing because here's the thing. The real danger of narcissistic leadership is that many under them will assume that they are working for the glory of God and they will not question it. This is the real danger when a pastor becomes a narcissist is that they will begin to use people and abuse people and push them around and use them as pawns in their own big game of fame and acclaim and greatness building a name for themselves, and everyone will think it's perfectly okay and normal 
because maybe they've never had another pastor and they don't know. Maybe they've never fully understood the gospel. Maybe it hasn't been communicated well. Maybe, maybe the picture of Jesus that the pastor has given them is deficient. But either way, they see the pastor, and whatever the pastor is doing, they tend to say, well, he's doing the work of God, so it must be right. And so you are like 85% less likely to question what the pastor is doing. But you should. You absolutely should. Because a church is a surrogate family. It's not a surrogate corporation. It is a table. And at the head of the table is Jesus, not the pastor. When I was a boy living in Los Angeles, um, my family, we were Southern Baptists, and we found probably the only Southern Baptist church in Anaheim, California, and, and we went there. And... Um, that was the first time I witnessed a church split. I was, we, had a, we had this amazing pastor. He was really great. Um, and he retired. And they wanted somebody new and young and a mover. And it was, you know, it was, uh, it was probably, it was, it was the mid-80s. I was probably like five years old. Um, there. Now you know about how old I am. I'm 40. Um, and, but I got carded yesterday, so take that. Um, so they hired this new guy. And uh, man, this guy was, uh, he was a firecracker, and he, he gave speeches, and he, turns out he was a narcissist, a big one, and he was manipulating everyone. He had this divide and conquer mentality, and people began to see it, and come together, and unify, and speak about him to the elders. And I remember specifically this moment when the church split. I was sitting there with my parents, and the pastor gets up. And he says, uh, he quoted this passage from um, First Chronicles. Uh, and he stands up and he says, God, God specifically told his people, touch not God's anointed. Touch not God's anointed um, and do my prophet no harm. And that is exactly what some of you are doing to me. And he's using the Bible in this way to shut up any criticism about himself. Except that God's anointed is not the pastor. God's anointed is Jesus. That is who God's anointed is. I always try to remember that when somebody comes up and they say, some ministry, some ministry you've done, something, uh, you're anointed. I understand what you're saying. I'm not, though. Jesus is. Jesus is the anointed one. He is the anointed king. Anything I do should be like him. And so Jesus is anointed. You can tell me I did a great job, but he's anointed, not me. Okay? Like, the pastor is not the anointed one. And when he said this, a bunch of people got up and left and never came back. And we stuck it out. And eventually the pastor got tired of the fight and he left and moved on to another church that he could abuse. And uh, the church spent a lot of time, many years in healing from spiritual abuse. I know some of you have been through that. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. Um, you're not alone. There's a lot of us who have seen that. And it's not just pastors, it's not just in churches, parents. You need to be self-aware. You need to understand that maybe you were raised by a narcissistic parent, and it's possible that you are passing this on to your children. It's possible. You need to understand it. You need to see it. Um, I have a friend who had a narcissistic father, and they never realized it until recently, how much they were abused. And their father would convince them constantly that they were just the most, you're, you're just the most rebellious child. 
you're not like any other children. You're, you're much more rebellious than any of them. And at some point, tired of, tired of dealing with the difficulties of parenting, they, they, they shipped him off to a, a boarding school, abandoned him. And the language became a part of who they are. And it took a long time to conquer that and to shed that. The language of, of, of you're just awful, you're much worse than everyone else around you, your childhood is different than everyone else's. No, no, no. Children are children. Children who are abused react. That's what happens. And they carry guilt for their entire life because of what they believed was them being a terrible child. But the fact is, this is how narcissists work. They make you feel what they want you to feel so that they can go get away with what they want to get away with. They want to justify their decisions by pushing the attention away from themselves. This is abuse. I want to lay out some of the things, um, two specific things that narcissists tend to say and how they should be interpreted. Um, so, let's do this. I got two things. One of them is, and perhaps you've heard this, you're too sensitive. This is something that narcissistic leaders will tell you when you are offended, when you um, come to them with criti criticism, when they say something that is outlandish and you call them on it, and you push back, instantly, you are too sensitive. And so, they usually say this when the narcissist abuse sort of when their abuse causes an emotional reaction, when someone turns on them and says no, and they push back and they get into a fight, instantly, it's, it's that you're, what you're doing is wrong. You're just too sensitive. Okay, so let's translate that, shall we? Let's translate this. Um, basically, here's what this means. You're too sensitive. It means you called me out on or reacted to my abuse, and so I'm, I'm now uncomfortable with that. I'm uncomfortable with you reacting to the, the abuse that I'm dealing out on you. But I refuse to take accountability for the abuse that I dole out because my ego is more important than how you feel. My ego is more important than how you feel. So let's keep going. Oh man, where are we at? I tell you that you are too sensitive because it will make you think that the way I treat you is normal and that you are overreacting. If I don't like the way you're reacting to my abuse of you, I tell you you're too sensitive in order to make you think that what you're doing is not normal, not me. I want you to think what I'm doing is normal. And here's my final line. This way, you'll feel worse about yourself, and I can keep on abusing you. If I can get you to think that my abuse for you is normal, I can keep abusing you and controlling you. Those of you who have been through spiritual abuse, this is probably a part of it. This is very regular. Another thing that is said is this. I hope you have a child or a parishioner like you one day so that you can know what it was like. So that you can know what a burden you are on me. I hope you have a child like you one day. Um, in ministry, this might sound like you treat me terrible. Why do you treat me so terrible? That's the response, tends to be a response for criticism. Is you're just treating me badly. And this is usually said when a narcissist cannot fully gain control over someone, when despite their best efforts, the person still thinks for themselves and doesn't accept everything you say without critical thought. And so let's, let's, um, let's translate this, shall we? It translates to this. The purpose of having children 
and pastoring a church is to have someone to control. I regret not gaining control over you, so I'm making myself a victim in order to manipulate your emotions. You not becoming like me in my narcissistic mind is a bad thing. And this is one of the ways that you can recognize abusive spiritual leadership is that, is that the leader demands that everyone think just like them or get out. I've had people come here and say, I, I, I couldn't serve at all in the church because I disagreed with the pastor on this particular thing. And I'm like, but that's not a thing at all. That's not an important issue at all. He's like, yes, but everything's an issue. Everything's important. And I can't be a part of that church unless I completely agree with the pastor. That is narcissistic personality disorder. And I want you to be immune to that. We are a body. Each of you is on an individual journey and a communal journey. These two things work hand in hand, yes. But you are supposed to read and study and think deeply and allow the Spirit to help you discern. This is how the church should function. Incidentally, this is why so many evangelical churches, especially if they lean fundamentalists, do not want people asking questions about God or the Bible or Christianity itself. It is why so many people get driven away from churches for asking questions and not simply accept what is being taught. Questions should be asked all the time. That's what a community does for each other. Not to each other, for each other. Narcissistic leaders will make the entire thing, including your faith, about themselves. And this is one of the ways that they do it. They will make your, your ministry, if you launch a ministry in the church, they will make that about themselves. Uh, your wedding about themselves. Your birthday will be about themselves. Oftentimes, they will cause problems on purpose to get the attention back on themselves. If someone else does a great job in the church, they will congratulate themselves on choosing that person to serve in that area. If they fail, if that person fails, or if the pastor fails, they will blame the unspecified person or group of people for not doing their part and essentially stopping the great work that the pastor was trying to do. Because nothing is the pastor's fault, but everything is the pastor's glory. We have to recognize it, we have to see it. The pastor is a humble servant, not a lord in the church. A few weeks ago, we talked about sin. We talked about sin, specifically how Paul describes it in the book of Romans. Here's a quick refresher, because we're going somewhere with this. Paul talks about these little sins, little s sins, and these little s sins are sins that you commit. They're things that you do. Um, little ways that you rebel, little, little um, ways that you don't measure up to the office and vocation that you have been created to hold, which is the imago Dei, the image of God in this world. And so we all commit these little sins, and Paul talks in the book of Romans about how these little sins um, work together, and they become, through something called supervenience, it's a, it's a term we talked about a few minutes ago, a few weeks ago, I don't have time to go into it, but sin, these, these little sins come together and supervene and become capital S sin. You can read about capital S sin in uh, Romans 6.6, 6, where it talks, Paul talks about how there's this now, this body of sin, and this body of sin, it, it thinks, and it moves, and it causes you to sin, and it... it the, the body of sin even sins, like it's doing something, like it's active in your life, causing you to sin. And so these little things that you do supervene into this big thing, and eventually this big body of sin, it causes downward causation upon you and causes more sin in your life, and it causes this thing to loop and to loop and to loop, and it gets worse and worse and worse, and this is how cultures are built. And to understand downward causation, you don't have to look just here. Um, by the way, if you want to read about this concept, I talked about it before, 
There's a book called The Emergence of Sin by Matthew Krausman. The Emergence of Sin, Matthew Krausman. Um, and it's specifically about sin in the book of Romans. Um, downward causation happens all over the place. Think about drug abuse. Now, I'm not even talking about illegal drugs. I'm talking about regular drugs that become abused. You can't sleep at night. You take some sleeping pills here and there. You start taking them more and more. Finally, you realize you can no longer sleep unless you have the sleeping pills. Something you used to do all the time, which was sleep, you can no longer do that without these things. So your little actions have formed a body that now decide what you must do. It also applies to even daily habits like fast food. If you eat fast food a lot, they talk about how it changes your taste buds to where things that are healthy no longer taste good. And salads suddenly are gross because you've eaten so many Big Macs and Crunchwrap Supremes. The Crunchwrap Supreme is, is where they get me. That's it. Especially when they're like, do you want extra beef on that? Of course I do. Um, and the more you do that, the more it forms this body that forces you to do it more. It is the same with sin. Sin in a community forms a body that becomes a culture, assimilating all who enter into it. And so when a church has become encultured to abuse, all those who enter into the church become victims of that abuse and get, get wrapped up in the cycle. And they eventually become abusers themselves. They go out and plant more churches that are abusive. And so what do we do? It doesn't change when you fire the pastor because it's a part of the culture now. And everything that you do, it will keep going. Well, the answer is goodness. Paul, there's this, there's this obscure passage that people rarely quote where Paul talks about at one point. He says, those of you who have been stealing must steal no more. Not only not, steal, not should you steal no more, you should start doing good things to replace the ways that you're stealing. Those of you who sin must not just stop sinning, but start doing good things to replace the ways that you have been sinning. And he's talking about this concept, and the way this works is by replacing sin with goodness. You must begin to inject goodness into the culture. You must begin with little things, little acts, that you are putting into the fountain that is going around and around. You must begin to inject little acts of love and selflessness and invite other people into it. And after a while, these things form a body of goodness that begins to conquer the body of sin, a culture of confession where we are open and honest, a culture of safety where we take care of each other and recognize abuse. It only takes a few to start it off. But those who begin to inject culture into a community, good culture into a community, are laying the groundwork for a culture of tov, which is the Hebrew word for goodness. A culture of goodness in the church. You can't just cut out the sin. Paul doesn't just throw away the body of the flesh. He talks about it being replaced by a body of the spirit. Jesus never negated people's emotions. Jesus never looked at anyone and said, well, you're just being too emotional. You're too sensitive. Jesus gathered with those who wept. Jesus wept himself. He joined them in their sorrow and he listened. He says, woman, why are you crying? He asks her. Imagine that. Having leadership in the church who asks you, why are you sad? Tell me about it. It starts 
at the top, it starts at the bottom, it starts in the middle, it starts with all of us. There's this one place where Jesus is being very brutally honest and it's too much for people to handle. And you read this passage, it says in in John 6, it says, he said this while teaching in the synagogue in in Capernaum and on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? He asked them, does this offend you? And you fast forward a little bit, they go back and forth and eventually at the end of the back and forth, everyone begins leaving. It says from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus didn't criticize them. He didn't threaten them and say, you're going to go to hell. Better come back. He didn't do that. He did none of that. Instead, he looks at who is still there. And he turns to them. And he says, do you want to leave too? Jesus asked the 12. And they responded and they said, where would we go? Where else would we go? You have the words of life. Jesus is the model of leadership. He's not distracted by the fact that he's not building a big name for himself. He's not upset by the people on the outside who are criticizing, who accuse him of all kinds of stuff. All kinds of rumors flying around. And it's okay. Because you can spend your time fighting back against criticism, or you can spend your time loving the people who are present with you. And that's what Jesus chooses to do. And in this way, he builds an army of good people that end up spreading so much love and bringing so much justice and separation and, and so much, um, giving up so much desire for these earthly kingdoms that eventually Rome collapses under the weight of it. Jesus is who we emulate. We don't go searching for the leaders in the Old Testament and try to be like them. We search for the ways that they both displayed Jesus and failed to display Jesus, and we are honest about it. And we do the same with those in leadership wherever we are. So if you were here from another church, I want you to benefit from this as well. I want you to somehow become immune to spiritual abuse. It is so prevalent, and it ought not be. And I pray regularly that this place never takes part in spiritual abuse that we can somehow be a culture of goodness. And so if you need more resources, um, a couple of books off the top of my head um, for dealing with somebody like a narcissist in your life, there's a book by Henry Cloud called Boundaries. That's helped me a lot. Um, Read the book along with us, uh, A Church Called Tove by McKnight and Berenger. Try to understand and recognize what it looks like in your life and in yourself. It doesn't mean you're evil. It means you're human and you have work to do. And I encourage you, not enough pastors do this, I encourage you to get therapy. I encourage you. Please do. If you need help with that, we, have, we work with counseling centers, email us and we can help get you plugged in with a counselor. Um, oftentimes we even help subsidize the cost of counselors if you are in need. Um, please reach out. We want you to be emotionally healthy, spiritually healthy, so that you can be strong images of God in this world. So whatever church you are a part of, you have a hand in building that culture, and the solution for the church cannot be the same as the solutions for the world. There will always, their, their ways of doing things will always look like business models and growth strategies, like pol, uh, political leaders or, or strategies of CEOs, but ours must look like Jesus. It must. 
And so I'm going to close here, and I'm going to pray. Why don't you stand and join me? Because we can end today with a collect prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, um, for your word. Thank you for these ancient people who, who wrote these things and had these exchanges and, and preserved these words for us so that we can understand more and more of what you were like when you walked this earth. I pray that uh, you would continue to guide us and fashion us in your image. For those who are suffering abuse, I pray that you would be with them, that you would guide them out of it, uh, bring them protection, give them the will and the desire to get healthy and to stand against this kind of thing. Help us to be a people, a family who sees that sees abuse happening around us and jumps in to help. Thank you, Father, in your name. Amen. So we have a collect prayer today written by our prayer team. Why don't you pray this with me nice and loud. Ready, here we go. Faithful God, who is present with us. Teach us to live as you intended, fulfilling our purpose, loving others as you have loved us, being a people set apart by your covenant through the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Grace and peace. Love you all. Miss you all who are not here yet. We're almost there. Be safe. Keep going. I'm getting vaccinated today. Woo! And I hope many of you are as well. So, grace and peace. God bless you.